Thank you all for being here. Thank you for braving all that you braved to be here. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we consider your word this afternoon, we ask that your spirit would be our teacher. And to that end, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Many of you know that I spent the first nine years after graduating from the University of North Carolina on the staff of what is now called CREW. It was a great way to step out into the real world while being encouraged to grow in my relationship with Christ and have an impact for Him. Now, very close to the beginning of that time, one of my co-workers gave me some advice that I've never forgotten. He said, Pete, confession is good for the soul, but it's bad for the reputation. <laughs> this afternoon, I want to do something that flies in the face of that advice. I'm going to begin my thoughts with a brief confession. Matt, can I turn this? mic off now for just a couple of minutes. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> well, if you weren't listening before, I'm pretty sure I have your attention now. So what's the confession? I have a love-hate relationship with preaching. Sorry if you're disappointed. Um, seriously, though, I do have a love-hate relationship with preaching. I love the preparation, the study, once I get into it, and I love the presentation part. My final year at Western Seminary, I was selected to be one of the senior preachers, the only goal I set when I started class. And Lord knows any of you who know me at all know I never met a microphone I didn't like. Doesn't matter if it's preaching or making a speech for work, or karaoke. Short skirt, long jacket by Kate, for those of you who are concerned. <clears throat> but on the other hand, I also hate the feelings of inadequacy and uncertainty that particularly preaching engenders in me. First, I struggle to choose a passage, the main text that we want to consider. Then once I've chosen one, almost immediately the questions arise. How can I possibly say anything new? How can I in any ways give them something they haven't heard before? What can I possibly add to their experience of the faith? This can go on for days, even weeks. And then there's the unceasing quest for the perfect wording, the need to make just one more edit. Fortunately for you and for me, I came across a familiar passage that answered all those questions. Well, except the editing one. <clears throat> Listen again to a portion of what Donna just read. For a context, this is the Apostle Peter's final words. They would be his lasting legacy to the believers to whom it was addressed. So with that in mind, Let's look at what he felt was most important to communicate to them. 
beginning in verse 12. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon be set aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always remember these things. Peter was not interested in imparting new wisdom, new truths that he had uncovered while he was imprisoned uh, in his final days. And if he didn't think that was necessary, why should I? Primarily, he wanted to remind the church of the truth they already knew. They weren't like the church at Corinth with its litany of problems who who received those two severe letters of instruction from Paul. Peter's readers did not just know the truth, they were firmly established in it. But he still wanted to remind them of it. He wanted them to always remember the truth long after he was gone. So what did he know? What did they know? Well, let's go back to verse three. Are you ready? Buckle up. There's a lot in here. His divine truth has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Now, some of you may know that I did study Greek when I was at Western Seminary. And those of you who were at last week's service heard Jason say that one of the cardinal rules of sermon preparation is to never say in the original language that means. Then you may also remember he went right on and told us in the original language that means. So I was figured I was safe to do the same. Even though it's been decades since I engaged in those studies, I can tell you with all confidence that the word translated in this passage as everything means everything. In other words, the believers Peter was addressing had, and by extension, you and me, have everything we possess, we already possess whatever is needed to live a godly life. Now, before we go any further, I hope uh, that phrase doesn't conjure up for you the image of a stoic, serious, straight-laced individual who takes great joy in taking the fun out of an ice cream cone. Did that make sense? Okay. Um, A godly life is life as God the Creator designed it. And that's one of the things that initially drew me to the faith. I came to the conclusion that if God is the author of life, then he is the one who knows how it would be best lived. And I would be foolish not to go to him and find out. Even beyond that, if God sent his son to die for me when I wasn't paying any attention to him, then he was not out to make my life miserable if I gave it to him. So here Peter is telling us that we already have all we need for that life. 
he goes on to say, through these he has given us his very great, not just great, very great and precious promises, so that by them we may participate in the divine nature, actually becoming like Jesus as he lives within us, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by its evil desires. Another couple of notes on the original language. These promises are in the past tense, having already given us, been given to us, and the result, as a result, we have already escaped, not the presence of corruption, but its power. It's already there. Building on that, Peter describes the elements, the evidences of a godly life. Faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love. Does that sound like something you read somewhere else, maybe? Uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, all of us would like those to be true of us. But Peter doesn't stop there. He says we shouldn't just possess these qualities. We should continually be growing in them, having more faith, exhibiting more goodness, more knowledge, more self-control, more perseverance, more godliness, more knowledge, more, more mutual affection, more love. That sounds like a pretty tall order to fill to me. But remember what Peter said earlier, we already possess everything that is necessary for a godly life. Now that's an awful lot to take in. So what was he asking his readers, and by extension us, to do with this knowledge? Quite simply, live it out. But, and prepare for another confession here, in my life there have been times, even extended times, when that was not my experience. And I won't ask for a show of hands of those who have similar experiences, but for some of you, your body language is giving you away. But Peter has some encouraging words for us as well. In verse 8, he tells us the problem is not primarily a lack of effort. Rather, to those who find their experience does not match these admonitions, he says they are nearsighted and blind, having forgotten they are cleansed from their past sins. He tells us the solution is not trying harder, and it never will be. Trying harder will either leave us frustrated, discouraged, and tired if we don't measure up, or annoyingly proud if we feel that we do. Rather, Peter is reminding us, encouraging us to remember the gospel to acknowledge our inability to live up to that standard and to embrace again God's forgiving grace. And if anyone knew that, it was the Apostle Peter. Remember too, the path we walk with Jesus is not a straight line of continual ascent. There are detours, bad decisions that send us down the wrong roads. But Jesus was aware of that. 
and came to provide the solution. He has paid the penalty on our behalf. So no matter how many times we get off track, God stands ready to forgive and to continue to move forward with us. Okay, I'm guessing many, if not most, maybe all of you are thinking, Pete, you're right. You haven't told us anything we haven't already heard. And I did not dispute that. But if there is a disconnect between what we know in our heads and what we know experientially, we need to ask why. Now, there are two key words in this passage that are held in contrast to each other and might have slid right past you. Forgotten and remember. In this passage, remember carries more weight than just recollection. It's not remembering or reminiscing about the good times from years gone by. Those memories are frequently flawed. Neither is it the same as remembering that the Pythagorean theorem states that the square of the hypotenuse of a right triangle is equal to the sum of the square of the other two sides. Do you remember that so you can pass the test and then forget about it? And for those of you who didn't grow up with a math teacher, mother, maybe you remember that the U.S. Constitution was ratified on June 21st, 1788. You remembered that for the same reason and with the same long-term result. Okay, enough pleasant, uh, unpleasant, enough potentially unpleasant memories of our schooling. So, what does remember mean in its biblical sense? The word carries with it the implication that the one remembering takes the appropriate action called for by that which is remembered. That's a mouthful, don't write it down. Let me try to explain it. Most of you know that I retired at the end of July after 27 years at the OHSU Foundation. What you may not know is that I have chosen to fill in some of my newfound free time by taking a writing class at Portland State. One day our instructor, instructor wrote, I remember on the board. Our assignment was to write as much as we could in the next five minutes with every sentence beginning, I remember. She did this not a t as a test of what we could recall, but rather to stimulate our thinking about those events, to take the first steps in processing them and consider what meaning they may have in our lives, ultimately, so that we would put those thoughts in written form. I would have said put those thoughts on paper, but who does that anymore? <clears throat> anyway, still not clear? Let me take you to the Exodus and the days following. If I could transport you back to the wilderness and, and you could ask one of the children of Israel if they remembered God delivering them from slavery in Egypt and parting the Red Sea. If you asked them that, I'm sure they would say, 
Of course. Because those types of plagues and overrulings of the laws of nature are hard to forget. But their actions did not they reflect that they remembered it. Or if they did, they felt that those events had no impact on their current situation. The type of remembering we read in Second Peter, and actually we see throughout the Bible, is not just a recollection. It is a remembering that spurs us to action and moves us to live in light of what has been revealed to us about the character of God. You have probably at one time or another heard me say, familiarity doesn't just breed contempt. It breeds complacency. Here's a similar thought. A little knowledge is dangerous, but it can also be numbing. So how do we take steps that move us from merely recalling to truly remembering? Letting that remembrance deepen our knowledge of God and direct our lives. If you're looking for a formula or five steps to the answer, I'm afraid you'll be disappointed. I'm done with formulas. But I will say this. Ultimately, an increasing intimate knowledge of God, a remembering of who he is and what he has done, is dependent upon the work of God's spirit in our lives. The good news is God is committed to doing that work. He hasn't left us alone. You remember that during his last meal with his disciples, Jesus promised another Counselor, another comforter, who, who was his spirit and who would lead us into all truth. Now that does require time spent in God's word, but it retire, requires time pondering that word, <coughs> meditating on that word, digesting it, asking questions like, What does what I just read have to do with my life today? Or how would my life be different if that were not true? A couple of years ago, I was talking to a friend. We were discussing our devotional lives, and I asked him, how long do you spend in your quiet time hoping for a standard by which I could judge? He responded, as long as it takes. Now, that was not the answer I had hoped for, but it is an answer that reflects a wise and healthy perspective on what it takes to know God better. Consider this, too. God not only sent his spirit to be our teacher. Throughout the Bible, we see that he has provided memorials as visual aids for our remembering. We already spoke about one. When even before he delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt, God established the Passover as a yearly reminder of what he would do, leading them out of slavery and into the promised land. And when this occurred, albeit 40 years later, 
and they passed through the Jordan River and entered the Promised Land, God commanded a representative from each of the 12 tribes to carry a stone from the river and place it on the bank as a memorial of the occasion when he fulfilled his promise. Those stones, that Ebenezer that we'll sing about in a little bit, were there to remind them and us that God never makes a promise he does not keep. And in just a few minutes, we will celebrate, as we do every week, another memorial reminding us of Jesus' sacrificial death on our behalf to help us remember we have been freed completely from all our sin. Okay, we're almost done. Would you like to hear some more good news that's worth remembering? Not only are we called, we called to remember who God is and what he has done, but throughout the Bible, we are told that God himself remembers as well. Not that God ever forgets. Rather, he will act in light of what he has said to be true. From Genesis through Revelation, God remembers. Let me share one instance with you that maybe could put the cap on it all. From Psalm 115, we read, The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear Yahweh, small and great alike. My final word to you and to myself is as we go through this week to remember that and to ponder what it means that God will remember to bless us and ask, what difference does that make in my life today? May that remembering bring us both comfort and spur us to action. Amen.